0: Romans chapter 13. In chapters 1 through 11, Paul explained the glories of the Gospel about Jesus the Messiah. And in chapter 12, he transitioned from what God has done for us to what we ought to do for God. And how did Paul begin chapter 12? Remember, he encouraged us He encouraged us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. That is, that that we must engage in the process of total transformation. That's why it comes across as a command. You engage yourself in offering your bodies as a living sacrifice. That we need to be complicit with the work of the Spirit and what He's doing in us, which requires that we renew our minds. Verse 2, right? He concluded... Um, Chapter 12, by talking about cultivating humility and service and love for both believers and unbelievers. And then we saw last week, our total transformation also includes our submission to the government that that God has placed over us. That is, that that we have responsibilities to them. And and he finished in verses 6 and 7 to say, pay your obligations to the government. That is, if you owe taxes to them or customs or honor or respect, pay it to them. Give to them what belongs to them. Well, here in verse 8, we have another obligation that really serves as the summary for all our interpersonal relationships. This obligation is one of loving one another. That we, it's not a, a, an optional item it's not an optional action; we can just do it if we feel like it. We have an obligation to love one another. So turn, So look with me at verses eight through ten in Romans chapter thirteen. This is the word of God. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This morning, we see that God calls all believers to continually love one another. That we have an ongoing obligation to love one another. Believers have a continual obligation to love one another. So let me show you this in the text. Um, First, love is our unending obligation. Now what you need to see here is that there is one main verb or one main command that we need to respond to and then all the rest of the text, all the rest of verses 8 through 10, focus or show support how that command ought to be lived out. And the reason uh, we're going to see the reason why it's so critical to love in this way. But notice the main command there in verse 8. It is to love one another. Now, it's stated in a kind of a different sort of way. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. So it doesn't come across and say, love one another. But, but really, the force of the command falls at the end of that, that statement or that imperative. And it is to love one another. The reason that we are to love one another is seen in the next word. For, for he who loves, and then notice verse 9, for, and then he, he gives some examples of some commands that sum up love. And then in, in verse 10, we could begin the, the verse this way, for love does no wrong to a neighbor. So the, the main point is all these supports go back to this main command, which is to love one another. And the conclusion of this reasoning is found at the end of verse 10, which is that love is the fulfillment of the law. So we'll get to each of those in turn. But first, this unending obligation to love. This unending obligation. In order for us to see that we are to love, we first need to see that there is this unending obligation. It's an unending obligation. That it doesn't ever stop. That we are to be loving one another. Now, when we look at this verse, maybe you've heard this used as a proof text that you should never be in debt. You should never go into debt ever. You see that in the text says, owe nothing to anyone. And so we take that and say, OK, we should never have a debt. We should never have anything that we ever have to pay towards anyone. But that's not actually what the text is is talking about. We know that it's not wrong uh, or we know that there is some danger right in borrowing money because Proverbs twenty-two seven says that the borrower is servant to the lender. So we actually become a slave, in a way, to the person who has the account over us or the person that we owe the money to. But I'm afraid that too often we have bought into the mindset in our Christian subculture that it's actually evil to borrow. And what I want to suggest to you from the Scriptures is that that, that is not the case. It is not evil to borrow. Turn to Psalm 37. Let me just show you an example. Psalm 37. We listen to some of these financial advisors, Christian, supposedly, financial advisors, and hear that we should never have any debts, but, but, but that simply ignores what is going on in the Old Testament. In fact, all the regulations that were set up to both not only um, permit borrowing and lending, but also to regulate it. The Old Testament is full of examples of borrowing and lending. Look at verse 26 of Psalm 37. All day long he, the righteous one, is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. So here in verse 23 you see it's talking about a a good man or a righteous man. The steps of a righteous man are ordered or established by the Lord. And then verse 26, all day long he is gracious and lends. So here God is saying the righteous person is the person who lends money or lends his, his possessions out to other people. Now, do you think that God would ever commend a person for helping someone else to sin? Would God ever commend someone to help someone else do something that was in violation to what he desired? You know, all day long the righteous makes idols. You know, he's not using them. He's... He's doing it for other people, so it's okay. Would would the Bible ever commend something like that? Or all day long, he teaches children how to lie. He's not lying himself. He's teaching other people to do it, so it's okay. No, the Bible would never do that. And yet here, what's going on is that God is commending someone who lends money, which means that that other person is actually borrowing money, which tells me, by implication, that borrowing is not inherently evil. There is nothing inherently evil about borrowing. Look at verse 21. The wicked borrows. Yeah, this is what the, sometimes the Christian financial advisors like to pull this out of context. The wicked borrows. But notice the rest of the verse. The wicked borrows and does not repay, or he does not pay back. That's the point. The difference between the righteous and the wicked is not that one borrows and one doesn't. The, the, the righteous are the ones who borrow and pay back. And so the implication is not that righteous people don't borrow. The implication is that righteous borrow and pay back. Now turn back to Romans 13. Romans 13. So the idea here in Romans 13 is that we have this unending obligation. And, and it's not that we should never borrow. He's not saying don't ever borrow. And oh, yeah, by the way, then let me get to this idea of love. What he's doing, is Paul here, is making an observation. He's saying, just as um, you should never have an unending obligation, there's no other place in in your life where you have an unending obligation, except for this one place. And so he's saying, I like the NIV translation here in verse 8. It says, do not have any debt outstanding. Don't have any debts outstanding. That's the idea. So if that's a principle, if you want to think about this in terms of financial um, principles, then that's the principle that you ought to live by. Don't have any debts outstanding. In other words, make uh, plans to pay those things back. When you have a debt, pay it back. So have you agreed to pay a loan back? Then do it within the terms of the contract. Do Do you have an old loan that hasn't been paid? Then go back and pay it. Okay? And so we can learn from that, but I don't think that was that's the point that Paul's making. The only outstanding debt he's saying that will not have a termination date is the debt that we have to show love to one another every one every other one of your debts has a termination right your your mortgage may feel like it doesn't have a termination, but it does. There's actually a date on there if you've got a good one, right? that it, that you plan to be done paying that. But, but here, the point is that love doesn't have a termination date. That we still have this ongoing debt all the way until we die. That there will never be a time when we can say, well, I'm done with that responsibility. No more love for that person from me. I'm, I'm all done paying that off. Let me put it to you this way. There will never be a time when you can go onto a radio program and tell the host your whole story and how you paid all your debts to love and then say at the end, we're debt free. Right? You can't do that with love. You can do that with money, but you can't do that with love. Because there is never a time when you are out from underneath your obligation to love. Now, we might not like to hear that, right? Because we know that just like with money, the borrower is servant to the lender. There's some bondage, a little bit of bondage that's going on there, right? That we are responsible to them. That they are, in a sense, our master, our owner. At least they own the property. And so when we have an obligation to show love to someone else, they, in a sense, have some authority, or not authority, but, but they, they have some kind of obligation that kind of hangs over our heads. And, and we don't like it when people have an upper hand on us. We want to be able to be completely free from having to love. But you know, that's not the way of a Christian, is it? Because as Christians, we don't live for ourselves. If freedom meant that we never had to love anyone and we could do whatever we want, that's not the, that's, that would not be the goal of a Christian. And aren't you thankful that other Christians have, have not given up on their obligation to love you? Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't look at paying love to you like He paid a debt off? Like, okay, I went to the cross, and done with that. And now they're on their own. See, love, we can never stop paying our debt to love one another. Now, we've talked about love before at the end of chapter 12. We talked about how we're supposed to love believers in verses 12 to 16 and then unbelievers in verses 17 through 21. But notice in verse 8, this is talking about believers. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, Paul's writing to believers, and whenever you see that phrase, one another, he's talking about a fellowship kind of love, a love that's supposed to be, or any action, whenever he says um, to pray for one another, primarily he's speaking about believers. And so I would say that that's the primary responsibility that we have. Now, we know from chapter 12 we have responsibilities outside of the relationships that we have with believers to, to show love to any neighbor that we have, right? The neighbor, remembered how Jesus defined it with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's anyone who crosses your path. That's your neighbor. You need to show love to them. But I think the primary focus that Paul has here is you believers who's, who are reading my letter, you have an obligation to yourselves to show love to one another. And that debt, that obligation never ends. So, now that we know the, the main command, let's look at the foundation for it in verses the second part of verse 8 through verse 10. The main reason that we are to love people unendingly is stated here at the end of verse Uh, It's stated at the end of verse 8, and then it's also stated again in verse 10. It says at the end of verse 8, For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Then notice in verse 10 at the end, Therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul is going to use these three verses to support his exhortation to love without ceasing, love without stopping. And his support is that when we love, we have fulfilled the law. Now, what does it mean to fulfill the law? If we're going to understand that, we need to first understand what it does not mean. What does fulfilling the law not mean? Well, fulfilling the law does not mean that we've accomplished all the law's demands. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying God set up a standard for you to obey. And when you love, you've done everything that God requires and therefore God accepts you. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that because James 2.10 says that if we offend in one point, we're guilty of breaking the whole law and therefore condemned before god and we also know from matthew 5 that jesus is the one who fulfilled the law he's the one who perfectly met all of its demands the fulfillment of the law does also does not mean that we earn our salvation that you know as we love one another and as we continually do it then we we've earned our salvation so that When God looks at us at the end of our lives, He's seen that we've loved enough and so now He can grant us salvation and we can enter into His heaven. Christ is the only way that we can receive salvation and that salvation does not come by our loving one another. That salvation comes by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. There's no works of the law by which we can be justified. So what does it mean then to fulfill the law? And here we see that, that law is the underlying, the, 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 law, the underlying reason for the law or what was going on in the law had to do with love. Can I just remind you that, that if you wanted to sum, summarize all of the Old Testament commands... All 613 Old Testament commands, if you wanted to summarize them, you could narrow them down into two. What are they? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what did Jesus say? The, the second one is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to summarize the entire Old Testament, you could summarize it by saying, Love God, love others. And so what that tells us is that if you want to look at what it looks like to love your neighbor, then then look at all the commands that God gave in the Old Testament. Because you know why those commands were set up? It was They were set up to show what it looked like for them to have a right relationship with God and what it looked like to show love to their neighbors. All the laws could be summarized in that way. And so what that tells us is that love is the underlying purpose of the law. God gave the law not to bring people to salvation. No one can come to salvation through the Mosaic law. The law was was designed to show them their sin and also to show them what love looked like, and to show us. Let's look at that in the text, verse nine <clears throat> "For this, you shall not commit a mur- you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not." Of it. If there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here, Paul gives four of the final six commandments that are in the Ten Commandments. And he's saying, if you think about the first four commandments, they all had to do with your relationship with God. And the last six commandments all have to do with your relationship with man, with other people. And so he lists out four of them. This is the seventh command that he lists first. Do not commit adultery. So if you commit adultery, you are not showing love to your spouse. You are not showing love for the person with whom you were immoral. You are not showing love to the spouse of that person with whom you committed immorality. So that's not love. So don't commit adultery. And then he lists murder. If you murder someone, this is a sixth commandment then you are not showing love for the person you murdered. You're not showing love for that person's family. right? If you steal the Eighth Commandment, commandment then you're not showing love for the owner of that property. You, you get the idea. We could go to coveting and, parent and, and honoring your parents, the Fifth Commandment, or telling the truth in, verse, in, in the Ninth Commandment. And what he's saying is, you see, the opposite of love is selfishness. Notice verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. It it considers what is best for the neighbor and it does it. So we could say that all the commandments are about love. If there's any other commandment that you find, the underlying purpose for it is to show us that we need to love one another. So that means that when you obey the commandments of God, you love other people. When you love other people, you obey God's commands. They are intertwined. Now, we need to recognize that we are not under the Old Testament law. We are not under the law of Moses. We are not responsible for the Ten Commandments as if they were given directly to us. The only reason that we obey them is because they have been repeated in the New Testament. And, and we are under, as Paul says in Galatians, the law of Christ. But, but I hope you recognize that all the commandments that we have in the New Testament have the same principle as the commandments in the Old Testament which is it shows us how to relate to one another, how to love one another. And so when we obey those commands, we do what the law intended for us. So the, the, the loving of one another helps us to fulfill the law. So when the Holy Spirit teaches us that loving one another fulfills, fulfills the law, He's showing us that this is what God desires for us. When he gave the law, his point was to show us what it looks like to love. So let me give you some principles to consider as we conclude this morning. Number one, cultivating a heart of love serves the church. Cultivating a heart of love serves the church. We have seen our continual obligation to love others. You cannot stop. You cannot get out from underneath of your debt to love one another. And we've seen our responsibility to love others both here here in in chapter 13, but also in, in chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. And this is important, because if we really do love one another, then it's going to settle a lot of the differences that we have. In fact, in chapters 14 and 15, the foundation for why we're going to be able to treat people who think differently than us. The the what, the reason we can treat them well in those situations is because of this foundation, that we have an ongoing, unending debt obligation to love one another. What often happens in the life of the church is that our preferences get in the way of unity. Our preferences take... take a, take superiority over our love. And and so as a result, we, we squash or squelch the actions of others. And our personal agenda becomes the prize that we seek. But if we're going to express love as the highest goal, then we will gladly set our preferences aside for the sake of the church. That's what chapters 14 and 15 are going to be about that we're willing to come together with people who have different ideas about how things ought to be run, and yet we're going to to love them anyway. That's part of what it means to be Christ's church. Number two, the measure of our love for others should be our own self-love. Paul says in Ephesians 5 that no one has ever hated his own flesh. No one has ever hated himself. We might look at people and say, well, you know, what about people who, who cut themselves? Or what about people who do, who do terrible things themselves? Or what about people who commit suicide? They certainly don't love themselves. But you know, that's not the problem. The problem is that they think that there's going to be some relief from that, from the, the other troubles that they're facing, right? And so they, they actually take the highest form of selfishness when they commit suicide. That is, that they are actually loving themselves most when they kill themselves. And, and so the point is, it's not that we shouldn't love ourselves. We all do. That, the point is that we all do. We can't get away from that. And that's why Paul just states it as a fact. We all love ourselves. So don't buy you the lie that says, well, you know, you need better self-esteem. That's not the case at all. Everyone loves their own selves. And so here's the basis for how you can evaluate how you're doing with loving other people. You have an ongoing responsibility, obligation to love one another. I have that same obligation. So here's a good way to, for us to evaluate ourselves. How is it that we love ourselves? Now let's think about transferring that to how we treat other people. What do we do for ourselves? We, we always are working to make sure that we have the highest pleasure. Right, and that we are accomplishing the greatest good. As Christians, that should be the case. And so that should be the measuring stick when it comes to loving others, right? I like what John Piper has to say about this topic. He says, so do you like to be fed when you're hungry? Well, then you should have a desire that your brother is fed well. Do you do you want to be protected from violence and disaster? Well, do you, you should consider other people and, and how... You can help to protect them from violence and disaster. Do you like to have friends? Well, then show yourself friendly to your brother because they like to have friends too. It seems so elementary, but it's so critical that we get this point, isn't it? That that the way that we love our brother is the way that we love ourselves. This is what Ephesians 5 talks about where it says, you know, husbands, love your wives even as you love your own body, because no one's ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cares for it, right? He, he makes sure that it's taken care of, that it's provided for. So do that for your wife. And I would say the same thing is true with us with regard to the church. Do you care for your own body? Do you care for your own desires? Then show love to one another and making sure that, that you're working to help them receive their highest pleasure, obviously godly pleasure what we're talking about here. Every one of us is good at, at creating ways that bring about personal happiness. Right? We, we know what it is to make ourselves happy and we know what it takes for us to get there. And so, why not, if you're going to evaluate yourself in terms of other people and how you're treating them, why not use up your resources to create ways that you can make your brother or sister in Christ happy? This is the kind of rationale that fuels my prayer life. I think, how do I want other believers to be praying for me? Do I want them to be praying for me generically or just kind of among a number of other names like they would, you know, read off a grocery list? you know, bless Jacob today? Or do I want other people to pray for me specifically and filled with scripture? And so if that's how I want people to pray for me, then that's how I ought to pray for you. And that's what I try to do for you every week. That I try to pray for you specifically by name and filled with Scripture so that it's in keeping with what God desires for you. So that's just one example of how you can, can do it. But, but it could come down to anything. You know, What is it that they desire in life? How is it that I can help them to get there? What kind of needs do they have today? But if we don't come to the assembly, if we don't think about one another throughout the week, we're we're not going to have we're not we shouldn't be surprised when we don't um when we don't show love to other people when it comes to Sunday. The rationale that should fuel all of our actions toward one another is if I were in their situation, what would be most help the most helpful thing that someone else could do for me? And now I want to I want to come to their aid and and I praise God that that this church is full of people that that have that kind of mindset because I have been the recipient of your love. And I've seen you cause other people to be the recipients of your love. And so I'm I'm thankful for that, but I think we all can improve in this area, can't we? That that we certainly don't love each other as much as we love ourselves. So we have some room to grow. So let's let's work through that. Number 3 And finally, start with the relationships you already have. Maybe this morning you've been thinking, you know, I am am convicted about my responsibility to love. I don't love people like I ought to. I am so selfish and so self-centered. I'm constantly thinking of myself and what people are going to do to take care of my needs. And when I come to church, it's all about me. When I leave church, it's all about me. When I'm at home, it's all about me. And so I need to love better. But can I just encourage you not to um, take on a new relationship in order to obey this command? You know, so, you know, I've kind of burned a lot of bridges and with, with the people that I already know. And so maybe if I just start a new relationship, maybe I'll, I'll send some money to an orphanage in Africa so that they can see what it's like for me to treat them like I would want to be treated if I were in their situation. So I'm not telling you not to send money, but I'm saying don't start there. Because do you realize that it's actually easier to enter into a new relationship with a clean slate? Because there's no bad history, right? They don't know you. They they have they don't have any memory of what you've done to them. And so you start up with a new relationship with somebody that you may never see and say, "Hey, I'm going to show love to you." But those are can I can I say that based on this text of scripture, those are not the relationship that God is calling you to enter into? That that He's saying, love one another, the people that you already know, the believers that you already have committed yourself to. Show love to them. And so can I just say, start with the relationships that you already have. What is one thing that I can do for my parents today that would be an expression of my love for them. Right? What is one thing that I can do for my son or daughter today that would just just be a response, or a response to what God's calling me to do? My debt to love my children has not stopped. It has not terminated, so I need to keep doing it. What is one thing that I can do today to show my love for them? What is one thing that I can do for my boss or my coworker or neighbor? Okay, those are all extensions or implications of this text, but I think the main focus is on the people within this local church. That is, what is one thing that I can do today or this week for my fellow church member that would be an expression of my obligation to love them, unceasingly love them, that, that all my debts might have come to a termination, I mean, we say, I'm debt free. But when it comes to my loving this body of believers, when it comes to loving the, the assembly of people that God has called me to, that obligation never ends. And so what can I do to improve in the way that I love one another? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Jesus Christ and we reflect on, on His love for us. We think of how He has uh, selflessly given of Himself uh, so that we could receive what we didn't deserve. And too many times we size people up and, and determine whether or not they are worthy of our love. But Lord, we're thankful that You didn't do that to us because we were not worthy of your love, and yet you gave it to us anyway, that while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ came to die for us. And so, Lord, our highest pleasure is to know you and to experience your deep, deep love. And so, Lord, may that be the thought that we have and the the ultimate goal that we are working towards with regard to the lives of believers in this church. That we want to see them experience that highest joy as well. To know You and to have a deeper relationship with You. So Lord, help us today to consider how we can provoke one another to love and good works. Certainly, You are not calling us to help people to commit sin or to enjoy their sin more and, and we could be the catalyst to do that. But but we are called to, to do what would be best for their, their individual lives. And so, Lord, give us specific ways in our families and specifically in this church that, that we can see where we are failing and where we can improve and then give us the resolve to follow through with that. Lord, the very least that we can do is offer our bodies and, and be complicit with the work of total transformation that you're doing in us. Lord, we pray that we would come to embrace this never-ending debt that we have. And we pray that the result of it would be that despite our differences, despite our preferences, we can grow in unity and love in this body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.